This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Josh Weil, author of the novel The Great Glass Sea, the novella collection The New Valley, and the short story collection The Age of Perpetual Light. Wiles' novel won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Grub Street National Book Prize, among other awards. The eight stories in the Age of Perpetual Light highlight various eras in American history. They highlight communities in the midst of an uprising and friendships that never quite reach clear communication and couples in the midst of change. The characters highlighted include immigrants, refugees, rural Americans, an Amish family, and criminals on the run. We began the interview discussing the title, The Age of Perpetual Light, and the inclusion of light in some form in all the stories. Yeah, The Age of Perpetual Light came from really out of the first story that started the whole thing. Um, And I developed an obsession I guess you could call it over 10 years, with this idea of humankind's need to decrease the amount of darkness in the world and increase the amount of light, um, and how that could work both just actually in the in the uh, elements of the stories, but also metaphorically and symbolically, and what that meant for our constant need for progress and our uh, fetishization of uh, of knowledge. When you say our quest to get rid of the darkness and have light all the time, there are some specific moments that you talk about in your book. And one of them is the idea of the Russians putting up these mirrors in space to actually illuminate dark parts of the planet when it is dark. Yeah, absolutely. This was a this was a crazy thing that I heard for the first time when I was in the cabin where I, I write and used to do all of my writing. Um, in rural Appalachia, um, and it's a cabin my brother and dad and I built. And there's, there at the time there's no Wi-Fi, uh, and there there was no internet, and um, I would just listen to the radio, and um, I was listening to a local NPR station. And I heard a interview with a professor who had written a book on the history of nighttime, which I thought was fascinating. And in that, he was just talking about a few examples of strange ways that that uh, people had tried to do away with the dark or battle the dark. And uh, one of the things he brought up was this thing that in 1993, the Russians sent up a satellite called Znamya, which means banner in Russian. And uh, it was it deployed these Kevlar wings, uh, almost if you can imagine like a morning glory opening up. Um, and they had a reflective surface that would catch the sun's rays and and carom them down into a specific part of the world um, and light uh, a part of the world that would be nighttime with a beam that was about two to three miles uh, in two or three miles wide and about two to three times as bright as a full moon. And the idea was that eventually they would actually be able to light say, Russian cities during the night. So there would be no need for street lamps. There would be no need for uh, to, have, to have nighttime there at all. You'd have the, this kind of a, a dusk-like light all night. And um, he just kind of moved on from talking about this thing. Uh, and I was just struck by it. I thought, what a crazy idea. And uh, so I, I wound up 
the first story that I wrote that sprang from that wasn't any kind of futuristic thing or uh, great world building around this. It was just the concept that I, I uh, what it would have been to know this thing was going to be flying over for the first time and to see this beam that it would cast down on the earth. And I built the story around this boy who is a refugee from the Bosnian wars um, and whose father had done some terrible things and had some very dark stuff in his background. And, and he was desperate to escape both real life and his own family and, and his own mind. And he latches on to uh, witnessing this event almost like it's some uh, great miracle of the natural world that's going on, going, going across the sky. And the story becomes about him waiting for this to pass overhead. Um, and it's, it's told through, uh, it's in first person and told through a, a narrator who uh, witnesses this boy go through this desperation and wind up doing something that changes his life. While this idea of this perpetual light comes into several of your stories, it doesn't come into all of your stories. So I'm wondering how you then decided to sort of organize the collection around this idea of light in some way, whether it was light bulbs or electricity or stringing up Christmas lights or bringing light to where there hasn't been. How did you decide that that's what you wanted to do and go forward from there? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think that the perpetual light, the, the satellites don't come into all of the stories, but the idea of light, like you say, does. Um, and the perpetual light aspect of it really had to do also with, um, like I say, our the, the, the metaphoric way that light is just increasing um, in, in our in our lives, both with as it stands in for knowledge, as it stands in for um, uh, progress and the way that in, in a very real way, we're just pushing darkness out of our, out of our lives. Um, so that's there in all of the stories. And it, it developed because I'd written this first one that had this space mirror element to it. I then, I couldn't let the space mirror thing go. Um, I just thought I'd written this one short story, but I couldn't stop thinking about why the heck they would have done this and what it would have meant if they'd been successful. And so I, I wrote another story um, that was set in the near future in America that is lit 24 seven, um, by a kind of fleet of space mirrors that keep the entire country rid of darkness. Um, and it's, uh, something of a, a, a road, road, sto- road trip story, a Bonnie and Clyde kind of story where these characters are fleeing, um, fleeing this perpetual light. Um, and once I had the two of those stories, um, I started, that was when I first started thinking about putting together something that would, um, that would hold together based on this idea. And I didn't want to write a whole thing about satellites, these, these space mirrors. And I didn't want to write something that was going to be futuristic because I don't, uh, I'm not really interested in science fiction. Um, I, I kind of was thinking of it more, uh, as a fable. Um, and I, I wound up writing a third piece, which turned into a novella, which isn't in the book. Um, and that, though, also had to do with this idea, but went historical, went farther back. And by the time I did that, I knew, okay, I've got these three things, and it would be a weird to just have them kind of randomly together. And so I started thinking about a collection that would be 
that would hold together around this idea. And but like I say, I didn't want to make it about satellites or something futuristic. I wanted it to be held together by something that was both distinct enough and clear enough and precise enough that it would make sense to bind a book together and also had enough in it just in the guts of it for me to get my hands around that I could come at it from different angles and have hopefully a diverse enough ideas and stories. Um, and so the idea of this, this kind of push to decrease darkness and increase light seemed like it could carry, carry what I needed. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Josh Weil, author of the short story collection, The Age of Perpetual Light. Is there any part of you, as you've been thinking about light so much, whether it's artificial light or natural light, um, that also can look at the world and be like, oh, well, on one hand, I think we're trying to get rid of the darkness. This is a dark time in the world <laughs> yes that's that's very true it's it, in a way as i'm sure happened with a lot of a lot of people and everything they do with their lives um when the election happened um uh it it cast my my take on this book and it, and it, it kind of shifted it um the stories for the most part in here there they there's a movement that goes from uh kind of looking at the seeking of light and progress as a good thing and then shifts toward by the end looking at the uh the negative side of that and it, it becomes a kind of anti-progress in some ways anti um uh anti-light feeling by the end of it only because i think we see so much that we have lost in the world through this kind of constant lust for it but when you get to a moment that feels like we are, have actually slipped backwards and we're somehow um, we've shifted away from a moving a movement towards progress in so many ways, and you feel that darkness looming, um, I feel like I might have included some more uh, some more hopeful kind of shifting story at the end of this if I had written this at the after the election. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, let's talk about the first story. It's called No Flies, No Folly, and it's about a young Jewish immigrant to Pennsylvania who is a peddler, and he has American dreams. He grows his business from sort of walking to a horse to a cart, and he sells to the Amish. And one of the things he that happens is he kind of falls for one of his clients. She's married, of course, and has children, and she wants him to bring her um, electric light, uh, a, a light is, that's new in the world and something that's also forbidden for her. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about the genesis of this story and some of the, uh, the sort of micro themes that you were trying to include in your own personal background. Yeah, sure. This is one of the few stories that, um, that I've written that comes out of my own life um, or out of my own background, my own history. Um, it's 
very loosely based. Uh, the character is, is loosely based on my great grandfather. Um, I grew up hearing stories about him. He was kind of legendary in my family, and he fled. He was uh, drafted into the Russian army as a, a young young man and fled Russia uh, at the time when you were a Jew and you were drafted into the Russian army. It was for 25 years, which was essentially a life sentence um, because you were also giving given the worst posts. So he, he escaped in a hay cart. It was all very dramatic and um, managed to get over to this country. Uh, he, he used his brother's identity papers. Um, and uh, my great-grandfather's name was um, uh, uh, Solomon is the name that he winded up, wound up taking. Um, he had a different name when he was in Russia. And he was known by his brother's name, Solomon, the rest of his the rest of his life, but he never saw his brother again, I believe. Um, and he, you know, had left his entirely fa entire family over there. And I was so struck. That was uh, of all the aspects of the story. That was the thing that that hit me hardest. That I thought about taking the identity of a loved one who you knew you were not going to not going to see again, and living with that identity then the rest of your life. So that was kind of the heart of the story. What then interested me looking at his story even more is, is he became a peddler um, and in, in New York and then in Baltimore. He was told he could make money selling lemons. I believe it was either Baltimore or D.C. And, uh, and he couldn't, yeah, surprise, make a ton of money selling lemons. And so he, he moved out to the Pennsylvania Dutch area um, uh, because Yiddish was close enough to Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, they could understand each other. And he became a peddler just kind of walking between the farms and built out of that a business that became successful. And, uh, and, and that's why he's kind of legendary in my family. Um, and I was just interested in the kind of drive that it would take for someone to take that journey from fleeing everything he knows. This is a, a typical immigrant story, fleeing everything he knows, leaving it all behind, remaking himself, and then pushing into completely unknown territory and building a life for himself that is uh, successful in an entirely new way in a country. And it struck me that he would have been, um, or at least the character Schimmel in, in my story is, um, is so desperate to cling to that American dream and so believes so much in this idea of constantly clawing your your way forward and not looking back because if you look back, um, it pulls you back. And, and so I, I wanted to write a character that was, that was rooted in that and that was constantly moving forward. So the story is set in 1901. Um, there's a, a whole romance that is not based on my great grandfather at all. Uh, I need to say, or my family will be very mad. Um, the, the fictional elements of the story are all made up, but that basic driven, uh, desperate character character trait um, was one that I wanted to tackle and seemed like a good one to start the book with, too, since it kind of starts that drive towards progress. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Josh Weil, author of the short story collection, The Age of Perpetual Light. I'd like to talk about that element of the forbidden and how the forbidden thing was light because 
the the woman in the story that he has this connection with knows that it's forbidden to get this light and he has to make the decision both to bring it to her um, and to show her in the garage and I'm just wondering about this element of of wanting something that you know you can't have and, and maybe the consequences of that or the urges that call you to want that mm-hmm. yeah I think that there's there's with the the woman in the story, there's um, a desperation that comes out of the light, meaning a whole lot more than just some uh, new technological thing that she knows she's not not supposed to have or see. There's a a she's she is drawn to Schimmel in that story. Uh, his name is both Schimmel and Yonkel um, because it was the, the thing about his brother. Um, but drawn to him in this story because he offers uh, everything about him offers a way to touch and smell and have some access to a world beyond what she's allowed. And so for her, it's really about being trapped in uh, a, a, a darkness that is not necessarily a bad thing. She has a family, she has, uh, you know, children that she loves. She's uh, even her husband is not a bad guy. Um, And, but yet it is limited and it's the it's the ability to kind of just dip her fingers outside of the realm of what is uh, of that of those limits that um, that draws her to him. And the light stands for that and stands for all of that in her. It's also he being so driven by what has happened in his life and his determination to make of himself uh, and, and as something that is that is is more successful and to constantly moving forward there's a ruthlessness to him that um was one of the things i was most interested in writing about he's i think an incredibly sweet man uh, i love him as a character um and i think he is uh very damaged and hurt and needs her so much and yet there's a ruthless side to him that is driven by that American dream of a constant kind of climbing forward and moving up. Um, and she in some ways becomes, um, she gets in the way of that in some ways or is, or is, is, uh, is caught up in it. You have a lot of, um, stories that focus on relationships either between friends or, you know, between lovers. And obviously that's, you know, probably of, of interest to, to most people because trying to figure out romance and attraction is perpetually surprising and mystifying and difficult to um, determine. And I'm wondering if you're more drawn to stories about love or and friendship maybe, or if that's just how it is. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't set out to write a collection that was that was centered around that. Um, I find that I'm, I'm a very hermetic person. And um, I, I tend to live in two different worlds, one that is where I'm sealed off and writing and um, my relationship is mainly with my characters and I have lived large chunks of my life without seeing anybody for months at a time. Um, and then my friends, maybe because of that, my friends and family are, are especially important to me and when I, would, when I come out of those worlds... Um, I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to maintain those relationships. And, and so 
I think that uh, kind of the, the, the stark uh, way that I can see when I come out of being on my own so much, how important having those bonds is, um, affects me. That and then just for whatever reason, when I was younger, um, loss became a huge thing to me. Uh, I say for whatever reason, and it's because I'm, I'm kind of avoiding the fact that it was probably a divorce that I went through when I was uh, about 20, I guess I was 23, 24. And I'm avoiding that because it's not any, any remarkably unique thing. I was young. I'd been married for a short while. Um, it was a kind of dramatic uh, split that happened, but it happened, you know, something like this happens to everybody, uh, if not a divorce, something else. And, um, and, and it built in me though, I think as I was developing into an adult, just an understanding of how important, uh, love between two people is and, and love, whether those are, uh, siblings or lovers or whatever, um, and how fragile at the same time. And, and I just don't think there are very many things that are as deeply affecting in someone's life as the loss of a loved one. And so there's that threat always hanging over us whenever we have a relationship. And I think built into that is an inherent drama that um, I find I'm always gravitating towards. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Josh Weil, author of the short story collection, The Age of Perpetual Light. So talking about intimacy and relationships, one of my favorite stories was called The Point of Roughness. And it's about a couple who live in Vermont. It's told in first person from the man's point of view. And they have a very sweet relationship. And they end up wanting to have a child and they can't. And so they adopt one who turns out to have autism. And it's kind of um, uh, amusing for the man about how he's maybe resentful of this child and the time that it takes away from his wife and the fears he has about his relationship with his wife dissolving in the face of this challenge. Yeah, this came from directly from my own fears. Um, I was... uh, recently, actually, I wasn't even married yet to my wife, but we were thinking about, um, having a child and we were, it was a huge decision for us. Um, I was, uh, getting up in years already and she had had a child a long time ago, uh, not a long time ago, but her child was almost 10 at the time. And so she was going back into the world of that. And we were discussing this a lot. And I had been drawn into my relationship with my wife through a, a really, powerful connection that the two of us had immediately. And it was unlike anything I'd experienced with anyone else. And I was terrified of losing that, of what, um, what it would do to our world that we had built very much between just the two of us to all of a sudden throw a third being in it and a third being that would suck up most of the air, uh, I knew. Um, and so, uh, it really came out of that fear and my writing in general, Ever since I was in graduate school, um, I've been able to kind of isolate this as the thing that drives it. And it's it's writing towards something that is uh, really hard and, and, and terrifying for me to look at emotionally. Um, and if I can build that into a character so that there's a a wound that the character has that is is drawn from what I'm struggling with. Uh, and then I can 
open that up more and make it worse and make it um, uh, the ramifications of, of, of what would happen around it uh, worse than they'd be in my own life, then I can build in a kind of a dramatic tension that is larger and a better story than just coming from my own life. But it's attached to something that is very real in me. Um, and I think that's central to what makes, for me, a story uh, alive and fully felt uh, is it's coming from something honest and real inside me that I've given to a character and then let take on its own life. I wanted to ask you about sort of where you start when you write with your stories, because there's so many stories in this collection that are different from one another, both in time period, in point of view, in place, in situation. You know, you have people um, like Schimmel, who's a peddler in Pennsylvania. You have sort of futuristic where this couple is trying to get to where they can find darkness in Canada. You have a woman who's obsessed with the, the light coming through the air. Um, and I, and young friends hanging out at a cement factory. So I'm just wondering how your stories come about in you if you start with an image, a character, a situation. I know you were talking about wounds, but it still gets manifest in so many different forms. And I'm wondering if you could articulate that at all. Yeah, it, 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 it usually starts with some image, actually. It's often visual. Um, it's often something that will be uh, striking to me in some way, uh, visually or, um, just some, some moment, but that's not a story. And what turns into a story for me is it will become something that I can see, oh, that would, uh, be the, it's all often the end. That would be the, the culmination of some movement that I find interesting narratively. And, and where the movement comes from, I did, I, like I said, I mentioned the wound and it's kind of a combination of some aspect of the world, some visual thing that I can see. It might be the uh, marriage lights in the point of roughness um, that are these kind of Christmas lights spread out over a, a, um, a greenhouse and lit like thousands of them. Uh, the couple makes love each year inside this greenhouse though with these lights. It might be some image like that. And I sort of think, well, how would that be attached to something that is built into a character's wound and and you know so with that it might be um okay this is a couple for whom this this shows the um the isolated world that they have with the just the two of them inside this kind of shimmering thing and how fragile that is and i and then i want to break it because because that's i'm, I'm, a, I'm a terrible person and that's what authors do is is they take their their characters and they put them through through hardship and so it's the looking at what that hardship would be then starts the story starts to build from that if that makes sense because that attaches then to where the wound is the character. And so then I say, well, this is about someone whose great desperate fear is, is losing that fragile thing that he has with his wife represented by this image. And all of a sudden you, st you start to see a story start to come together. Um, and then I'm looking at, well, what would be the thing that would be the greatest threat to that? Um, and, and that starts to build the story out. Um, so it, it, it has to do with both some kind of a striking element that grabs me and then attaching to that a character wound and the story is always about the character trying to solve that wound in some way. Um, and, and that's, uh, just 
the way that I've thought about stories really probably since I was first writing, but crystallized for me when I was in graduate school and working with a mentor of mine, Mark Sloka, um, who first talked about the character wound. And now I think about it as the wound and the want, essentially. Um, there's the character's wound, there's the want to solve it, which is attached to a specific thing via the specifics of this image of the world that I've found. And uh, the story starts to come from that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Josh Weil, author of the short story collection, The Age of Perpetual Light. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I think I'll read from The Visible World by Mark Sloka. Um, I mentioned him as a mentor to me, and um, he his idea of the wound that he brought into my life um, really shifted my thinking about writing. So I'll just read, um, this is the opening uh, couple paragraphs of his novel, The Visible World. One night when I was young, my mother walked out of the country bungalow we were staying in in the Poconos. I woke to hear my father pulling on his pants in the dark. It was very late and the windows were open. The night was everywhere. Where was he going? I asked. Go back to sleep, he said. Mommy had gone for a walk. He'd be right back, he said. But I started to cry because Mommy had never gone for a walk in the forest at night before, and I'd never woken to find my father pulling on his pants in the dark. I did not know this place, and the big windows of moonlight on the floor frightened me. In the end, he told me to be brave and that he would be back before I knew it and pulled on his shoes and went searching for his wife and found her eventually sitting against a tree or by the side of a pond in her tight around the calf slacks and frayed tennis shoes 15 years too late. And can you say a little more about why you chose this? Yeah, I think it just gets at that, uh, this sense of tragedy hidden in here, this sense of a, of a, a wound that you know is coming. Um, and there's, uh, it opens, you know, just a child perspective, but by the time you get to the end, this 15 years too late, it has a weight to it that just just falls on you and, and lets you know that you're going to be dealing with something that's going to be uh, emotionally serious. Um, that combined with just, I think, just beautiful writing. Um, he has, especially at the end of that, um, the specificity of this tight around the calf slacks and the frayed tennis shoes paired up with... Uh, I found her eventually sitting against a tree or by the side of a pond. Uh, this lack of knowledge, I think it, it kind of represents what's going on in the whole novel, where this character is using the specifics of his imagination to try to get at the things that he doesn't know about his parents and can't ever know. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or um, is just something you like or was tricky? Sure. Um, I'll read something that was tricky um, and, and, and did change uh, as I tried to work through it and work through it and make it, make it work. And that's the opening of the story, the essential constituent of um, modern living standards. That's kind of partway through the book. Um, this was tricky because it's written in um, – the first person plural, it's a we voice. Um, and there's, I, I wanted to open this story with a sense of not knowing, with a sense of confusion that the, that the characters, this communal we have about what's happening. And yet at the same time, build into it 
specific, enough specifics that it wasn't going to throw the reader to the point where the reader is going to just put it down and say, I don't know what the heck's going on. And so finding that balance of keeping this sense of being confused and yet having enough to latch onto that you start to build uh, clarity um, was, was, a, was a tricky thing. I went through a bunch of drafts on it. So I'll go ahead and just read the first paragraph of that. We woke to a world opened up in holes, a dawn still stained with spots of night. Stoking the stove, we stood, went to the window, blew out the lamp to better see. Out there, beneath the barely brightening sky, the snow-smooth pasture somehow gone gutate while we'd slept. Letting out the dog, we lingered in the doorway, the cold cutting through our nightshirts, down our gowns, gazed at what we gradually made out to be a line of fresh-dug pits, big and black as tractor tires, startling as exit wounds ringed by bursts of dirt. Outside the milking parlor, amid the lowing, we squinted past the path they made through nearer fields, discerned a distant movement, men on the far-off slope, shovel blades flashing first light, pickaxes swinging in glinting arcs. We called for our husbands then, went to our wives, stood side by side in the slam and slam of steel bars driving down. In the corners of our mouths, the egg yolk had gone clammy. On the stove, the bacon began to burn. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Just that the that first person plural um, didn't allow for a kind of clarity that often happens when you dip inside a character's interiority and attach to one character. So that was one of the tricky things is this fluidity of moving from specific uh, specific things that people were seeing and yet having it not be specific people. Where do you write? I write down in a little 1959 Dalton camper trailer um, on a creek uh, called Deer Creek in Nevada City, California, and um, it's uh, it's great. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Typically, I'm trying to get to the writing, uh, especially now that I have a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, um, but when I need to, need to kind of clear my head entirely and, uh, and escape from everything, I... I try to get as far away from my regular world as I can. Uh, that means I've, I've gone to places like Mongolia and hitchhiked and backpacked across a large swath of the country for a month, uh, something like that that just shifts me entirely out of my world and makes it so my head can't, can't get back to, back to what's clogging it up. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Used to be my brother, um, but... Uh, he doesn't read much, much anymore. And uh, I wind, I, I've kind of gradually shifted to showing it to very close friends who uh, met at writing conferences and in graduate school and who for the past decade or so, um, we, we've shared each other's work. How have you dealt with rejection? Not always well, but uh, the one thing that I can always do if I can get uh, out of my own head is to get into the characters and the story that I'm working on and, or start something else. If I can get into that good place where you're just immersed in the world. And if I can find the love for the characters that I'm about, about, about which I'm writing, um, you know, everything else falls away and it's required for the work, but it's also required for your sanity. And what is your favorite word? My editor would say just because I use it too much. He just did this or I just that. And uh, she's constantly cutting it. Um, but I would say the word that 
that for some reason just I, I find I love as a descriptor is swale uh, and when you're talking about a landscape uh, the kind of dip of a, of a small valley a swale um, just worked for me You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Josh Weil, author of the short story collection, The Age of Perpetual Light. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.